kind of a rapid descent from the gold medals and <laughs> Olympics into the word. But uh, I have been preparing for um, the upcoming missions conference. Uh, the missions committee uh, has is going to fly up Juan Carlos to come speak um, from Ecuador. Um, he's just a tremendous light down there. A guy who has a passion for the jungle people and so forth. So he's going to come speak. But they've always at, already or also asked that I would speak from the life of Jim Elliott, who was uh, one of the first missionaries to go down there and, and give his life. And so I've been busy reading his biographies and journals. And, um, and in my reading of his journals, um, there is this statement that has seized my thoughts. And I wanted to read it to you. This may be a little tidbit for the upcoming uh, missions conference. He looked around at the church of his day and, and he wrote this. This is, again, in his journal. He said, we are sideliners coaching and criticizing the real wrestlers while content to sit by and leave the enemies of God unchallenged. He saw Christians all around him criticizing each other. Meanwhile, the true enemies, the fallen powers of darkness, were left unchallenged by the church. This is back in the 40s. He went on to say that the world cannot hate us. We are too much like its own. And here's the statement that, that, that gripped my thoughts. He finished with a plea. It's like a prayer written down. He said, oh, that God would make us dangerous. That just sticks like a, you know, like a burr in my head. Oh, that God would make us dangerous. And just to be clear for those who might be visiting or new, he's not talking about physical danger as if we're going to go on some Christian crusade and and kill people. He's asking and pleading, Lord, please make the Christian church potent again. Make us dangerous to the forces of darkness. Make us effective because even in his day, what, 60 years ago, 70 years ago, he saw a church that was largely weak and impotent. And so he He prays this, oh Lord, oh God, make us dangerous. And he was one of the few who rose out of that kind of weak Christianity to experience what many dream of and few ever realize, to live a life that is dangerous to darkness, as his martyrdom testifies, for he gave his life for the sake of the gospel. That my friends, is my prayer for my life. It's my prayer for this church that I pray almost every day. That God, in an act of grace by His Spirit, and one of the reasons why we have taken on the subject of the Spirit in the past, that God would break us out of the accepted norm to be a people who are dangerous to darkness and really live what we believe. That's, that's been my prayer. That God would break us out of the accepted norm, which is, I think, by all accounts, pretty dang weak in our time, which is why we make so little impact. But I find myself wrestling with the question, how, Lord? I mean, as, a, as one of the appointed leaders of the church, how, how does this happen apart from, and I know one side of the answer is that it's a sovereign work of grace and the Spirit of God creating a refreshing and a reviving of God's people. I get that. But there's also the other side of the coin which says, well, what then does God call us to do? 
And that was essentially the question or a series of questions that we have been wrestling with as elders and also as a staff. Um, January, we went away on a retreat. And in February, the elders went away on a retreat with a singular purpose. It wasn't to throw up a, a, a blueprint of here's this new program we're going to do or this is what we're going to do to expand facilities here. It was simply and exclusively to seek the face of God to know, Lord, what is at the heart of what's holding us back? And consequently, what's our way forward? And so we opened the scriptures and the elders fasted a day and, and we discussed and dialogued and just for one simple truth and, and realization. What is it, Lord, that is holding your people back? And what is our way forward? And we were looking for the heart of the issue. You know, we've, uh, let me just be upfront and tell you, we face a lot of different issues in this church, as I'm sure most churches do. We face the issues of Obvious, a lack of commitment to marriage. Not everybody, but some. I think another issue that some face in here is a, is a fear of what people think. And it keeps them from being all that they can be. I think another issue that we face is a general disregard and indifference for people dying and going to hell all around us. I mean, I could go on. Those are all issues that we face. Now, I recognize that's a generalization. It's not true of everybody. But those are some of the things, issues of this congregation. But I think, and we were convinced, that those are symptomatic. It's not the source. So to simply treat the symptoms of we have lack commitment of marriage without treating the source of the problem is like putting lip balm on, on someone who's dying of thirst. It might feel good for a moment, but they're going to die. We believe that those symptoms come from something much deeper. And it was, it was out of those two retreats that there was a unified conviction as to what at the deepest level is holding us back and consequently our way forward. And that's the intent of this particular message, to share that with you and to bring us to the scriptures to show us that this is the way. So let me just share with you what we believe is at its root at the core, and our way forward. Now, in some respects, it's not new. It's just coming back to what we've always known. So if you're expecting some huge ta-da after a big drum roll of verbal flowery speech, then you're going to be disappointed. But this is what we believe is, is the deepest need of this hour. Is to experience in our lives. By lives, I mean our affections. To experience with our lives what we already know in our heads. doesn't sound especially profound, but let me uh, expand on that a little bit. I think one of the things that Parkway Community Church is known for, and we're not perfect at it, and we can do a lot better, But we have a reputation for being a church that is committed to the exposition of Scripture. That we have a lot of bright people here who know a lot about the Bible, a lot of theological facts, and a lot of doctrinal propositions. And that is a tremendous, I think, strength. We have some weaknesses that we're trying to fill in that educational spectrum so that we can actually disciple people more effectively. But I think that is 
one of the marks of this particular church, and it is a strength and something we don't want to see diminished at all and improved upon. But, and here's the rub, what we don't often see, and again, this is a generalization, it's not true of everybody, what we don't often see is people gripped by what they know. To see people seized by the brilliance of the glory of Christ, his death and his resurrection, so that it actually changes the fabric of their lives and families. It's the realization of information that I think in many respects and is at the deepest level what holds us back. When the Spirit of God takes information and transforms it into realization, when fires burn, people are changed. Abraham experienced God and lived for him. Isaac experienced God and lived for him. Jacob experienced God and lived for him. Moses experienced God and lived for him. David experienced God and lived for him. Paul experienced God and lived for him. And God has not changed. That is to say, a lot of us know a lot. But does it captivate? Does it wash over you? Overwhelm? To the point that you want to stay committed in marriage. That you want to tell other people about the glory of Christ. So that you want to lovingly serve other people in consistent and persevering ways. We're getting at, I think, the heart of it, which is motivation. And what motivates is being gripped by the glory of Christ. I want to draw your attention to a, a brief passage in Psalm 63. Chris Gray wrote a song about this psalm years ago, and so many of you know it by heart. I want to read it for you. A psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. O oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my body longs for you, in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. And I know it doesn't read on there, but I want to continue a couple more verses where he says, My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I will remember you. I will think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I will sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. My focus is verses 2 and 3. But I want to make two preliminary observations about this particular psalm that I think set our bearings on this text. A historical one and an emotional one. The historical observation is the opening line. It's not even considered a verse. A psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. The fact that he was in the desert of Judah probably locates this psalm in terms of history 
sometime when David was being hunted like an animal by a king, a king by the name of King Saul. He was out in the desert, scavenging for food, scrounging for water, facing the sword and spear at almost every turn. That is, the psalm is set in a time of desperation and tremendous adversity. Whatever adversity you may feel right now you're going through, and this is a season of adversity and tribulation. Whatever tribulation or desperation you may feel in this moment, I don't think it compares to the desperation of David's time in which he was running for his life. But what you'll also find if you read the history that surrounds this psalm, beginning in 1 Samuel 19 and the chapters that follow, is that despite the fact that he was experiencing adversity all around him, spear and sword, he continued to fight and serve the interests of Israel. In other words, he wasn't merely surviving like many of us in today's adversity do, just trying to survive. He was thriving. He continued to maintain a faithful course in pursuing God's purposes for his life. He didn't give up. Despite the fact that there was this tribulation, he still had this radical form of trust and faith that launched him forward. The question is how? How is he so faithful and so radical in his obedience to Christ out in the desert fleeing for his life? That's the historical circumstances and observation. The second observation is an emotional one, which comes from the first verse. One might expect the man in the desert of Judea, and I have been there, and there's only a few places you can drink fresh water. One might have thought in this desperate desert condition, he would have longed for water. He would have longed for a nice big leg of lamb or dreamed of sitting on the porch with Bathsheba and drinking some Jewish wine or maybe a fresh ice-cold lemonade. But he doesn't. In this desperate desolation, he hungers for one thing. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Not just his soul, but his body, his entire being is consumed despite the fact that he's out in the middle of the desert and is being pursued. He's thinking of one thing and wants one thing. And those are all emotion words, affection words. He wanted God more than anything else in his desperate condition. So the history is one of desperation. And his emotional state is one of desperation, but it's desperate for the Lord. By the way, you'll notice that verse 1 is all in the present tense. My soul thirsts, I seek, it longs. That was the present state of his soul. What was it that created this thirst, this longing, this desire, this passion? And here we come to verse 2. And three. He says, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life. Find it interesting that verse two is not in the present tense but in the past. I have seen you. Past. 
and beheld your power and glory past. Verse 2 reflects a past experience. It is a memory of an encounter with God. I have seen you, and the word translated seen is a seeing which is beholding something that is desirable and gratifies. I have seen you in the sanctuary. Now, whether he saw with his physical eyes, which we have no historical evidence of, or whether the Spirit of God pulled back the veil of his heart, as he does many of us, so that we could see with our souls the glory and the power of God, we do not know. The point is, he saw it. And in this desperate state out in the desert, running for his life, he remembers what he experienced when God opened his eyes and he saw the glory and the power of God. And that's what prompted the thirst and the desire, the passion and the longing, was that he had a first-hand encounter with the God who created everything. And apparently that glory and that power were associated with his love because in verse 4 he says, because your love is better than life. That part of the the glory that made David long for the Lord was the fact that his glory includes the magnificence of his love, which is gracious and merciful. That his love is also powerful and will never let its object go. So he has had a first-hand encounter that involved both his mind but also his affections. Hence you have the word thirst and long. With the power and the glory and the love of God. Had David been able to see forward into the future and to know that God's love went to the point of bleeding for sinners and then raising them to princes and offering them a new heavens and a new earth through their Messiah, I think he would have exploded and said, Unbelievable. But it was an experience for him. It just wasn't information. It was a realization. That's why he can say your love is is better than life. That phrase better than is what we use oftentimes to compare experiences. Ribeyes are better than sirloin. Or Macy's is better than Ross. Or the iPhone is better than the Blackberry. Or Ford is better than Chevy based upon our respective experiences, of course. David wants to compare the experience of what he encountered with the Lord at a point in his life which he longed for ever to return as he associates the experience of God's love with the greatest of all created gifts, namely human life. Your love is better than life. If I had to choose between the experience of your love and human life, then hands down I will take love any day of the week. Therein lies the secret of David's motivation. Did he continue to fight, serve the interests of Israel, and glorify God in pursuing His purposes? Despite the desperation and the tribulation, he had seen and beheld the glory and the power of the Lord. And his love experience was better than life. And once you really taste that, and information becomes realization, then you want more of it. 
And it's what you think about all the time, like a starving lover waits and thinks about the object of his or her affection. It's all I'm dreaming about, all I'm thinking about. David in desperation is just dreaming about the day he can once again encounter the Lord as he once did. That wasn't just true of David, by the way. What made Isaiah the prophet of prophets? He saw the Lord exalted in the train of his robe filling the temple. And he was in that moment broken, but he also experienced the love of God that came to him with a coal cleansing his lips. And then he said, here am I, send me. He experienced the glory of God in a very real way. Paul would say the same thing. A radical life, what was the key? 2 Corinthians 5, the love of Christ compels me. Paul tasted the same stream that David did. Your love is better than life. It compels me to live. Most of us don't lack information. We lack motivation. And the motivation comes from our first-hand experience of tasting and seeing that the Lord really is good. We don't just know it with some kind of idea, but we experience it as He presses it into our hearts. People get that, they'll want more. And in the wanting of more and the experience of the love and the power and the glory of God, they will find themselves and find the motivation to stick out the marriage and to serve one another with perseverance. That's how it works in my life. I just, honestly, you want to motivate me, don't just tell me what to do. Show me why I'm supposed to do it. You know, the Jerry Maguire statement where he's like, show me the money. Like, money is what motivates. Show me the money. Show me the money, Jerry. Money does motivate, but I'll tell you what. You show somebody the glory of God and they get it in their hearts, that motivates. Show me the glory of God and I will want to keep His commands. I will want to love people and I will want to love my wife. I mean, the Word of God then becomes more than just ideas on a page. Or it's like Psalm 118. It says that I was pushed hard so that I was falling. The psalmist writes of a desperate condition. But the Lord was my help. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Those words become like, like a thousand doors of the soul opened and light shining in. And then the soul is refreshed and you find yourself feeling like David no matter what the circumstance. I have beheld your power and your glory and your love is better than life. If, and I pray that you will pray with me and all of us as one of the reasons for these prayer nights. If the Spirit of God ignites what you know, into a realization that captures your heart. Something's going to happen and things are going to change. Look what it does to his life. It explodes in praise, despite the fact that he's in the desert and in tribulation. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. That's what he says. I missed a part there that says, my lips will glorify you. That's kind of ironic, don't you think? And this just goes to show that many of us don't experience 
the glory of God in our hearts because we rely a lot on technology to move us to lift up our hands. And David's in a desert without a guitar and without a speaker. And he is captivated by what he encountered, the glory, power, and the love of God that is better than life. And he worships. When God moves in your heart, you're not going to rely on other things to worship because it's real to you. He meets you daily and shows you his love. I mean, he says, my lips will, this is the resolve of the soul, will glorify you, I will praise you. It is the universal response of humanity to praise what we believe is great. Can't help ourselves from talking about what we love and what we think is awesome. Not only does he, does he praise God with his lips, But he says, I will praise you all the days of my life. In other words, the greatness of all that I've experienced and will experience of you will call forth praise to the end of my days and beyond. I will worship you all the days of my life. And David is still living and he'll continue to live into eternity, which means it will be a holy vocation for eternity to praise the greatness of who God is. And not just with his lips and his life, but also with his body. With his hands. In your name, I will lift up my hands. The holy people of the Bible and the men and women who got it didn't feel insecure about raising hands to the Lord. It was almost spontaneous, spontaneous, natural. And I've given thought to this raising of hands and worship thing because some of you like to do it and others don't. It's okay. It doesn't make you more or less spiritual. But it fascinates me that, that God has made certain members of this little body we have to express. To express emotion. Thoughts. Affection. Primary ways are lips, you know. We talk. That's the way we say, I love you. Or I don't like this, or I don't like that, or that's awesome. Beyond the lips and possibly the eyes, the members that God has given to us that best expresses what's in the heart are these things I'm moving right now. Hands. They are a means of expression, a physical means of expression. When God moves upon the soul and the heart in a way that you get glory, power, and love of Christ, then one is moved to worship not just with lips, but with body and with hands that express. Can you imagine going to your son's little league game and at the six six years of age, maybe to be farm league, I guess, you're the father and he hits his first grand slam. And you leap to your feet, but your hands are sewn to your side. And you say, great job, that's awesome. That is completely and utterly absurd. Or to say to your wife over a candlelit dinner that you've prepared for, I love you. That's absurd too. Because the natural means of expressing ourselves that we do every day, whether it's cheering on our team or whether it's talking to our wife, like, I love you. If I had to come up here and teach and preach and stick my hands in my pockets the whole time, I think I'd go nuts. Because we all express with our hands. So it's no wonder that David says, I will lift up my hands and I will praise you. 
And that is used in the scripture not only to, to affirm praise of something, and by the way, that is a universal expression of praise in every generation, sitting in the arena watching curling of all things, hucking pieces of granite rock for crying out loud. And I see Swedish people and Norwegian people and Chinese people, when their team makes a point, everybody goes, Woo! That's what they do. Regardless of culture or background, that is a universal expression of, that's awesome. And yet somehow, this probably gets more into the fear of man thing, somehow we come in and we're singing about the greatest thing in the entire universe, and, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do. Just let it out. That's what you need to let it out. It's not only natural to the human life and expression and legitimate, it is biblical. Psalm 134, verse 2. Lift up your hands in the sanctuaries and praise God. Jeremiah, Lamentations chapter 3, verse 42. Let us lift up our heads and our hands and praise the Lord. Or Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 2. I want men in every place, talking about Christians, to lift up holy hands in prayer as an expression of what God is doing in the heart and the life of His glory and His power and His love being brought to bear upon my soul. It's interesting, even signers, you know. You ever notice? Feet aren't meant for expression. <laughs> you imagine people trying to sign language up front with your, your toes and feet. It just doesn't work. But this, that expresses. He gave us for us to let it out. And some of you might be thinking, oh, that's outside the box of my comfort. You know what? Here's, here, here's what I've come to is that if it's outside the box of your comfort in here where people believe, then how are we going to find the courage to live out there in ways that people find either offensive or weird? Or you might say, well, it's distracting to other people. I have not once been distracted by somebody lifting their hands in worship to God. Most of the time it inspires me. I still remember a brother who goes to this congregation. I won't use his name because I don't want to embarrass him. But we went to a conference together. There must have been four or 5,000 people there. And we started singing. And he was a lone body that stood up. And he raised his hands and he sung. And I thought, yes. He is worshiping God, not just with the lips, but with his body and his heart. That said, I, I recognize that it's not a mark of spirituality. It's just to say that when God moves in the soul and you want to express it, Lord, I get your love and I'm so broken by your love and I love the fact that you have forgiven all my sin and you are patient beyond belief and your steadfast love is abounding to me day after day, then just do it. Don't give a rip what other people think. It's a biblical expression of worship. That said... Sorry, I just had to include that because some people seem a little spiritual, spiritually constipated. Is that probably bad to use? But just, I would want people to, to experience God in their lives and pray, Lord, sink in deep and bring this information of my mind into the realization of my soul. And I want to worship, 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 and praise you. We see the picture that emerges from this psalm. A man in desperate conditions, in a desert, fleeing for his life. And yet there's one longing of his soul. And that heart cry and motive is to thirst, long, seek, to be and encounter the one he loves the most. And therein, I believe, lies the motivation for faithful living. 
It's not just knowing the right things. It's having the motivation. And the motivation, I believe, is that the love of God compels me to live this way. And when that becomes a reality in our souls, then the streams of living water will burst forth in our lives. I believe it. I'll close with this illustration that that Sam Storms gave in his book, The Seeing God, and it just gripped me, and I can't think of a better way to put it than he put it. And it kind of brings this all back together. As he talked about uh, taking a vacation up into the Rocky Mountains with his wife and two daughters, and they're driving along up into the mountains, and they pass by these, these alpine streams. And there's two little girls in the back seat say, Dad, can we pull over? Can we pull over and see the streams? And Storms acknowledges he's reluctant. I don't want to stop and pull over because they're going to get wet. But uh, he finally caved into the pleadings of his wife and daughters, pulled over the car, and they all got out. And before they knew it, they were all in these fresh crystal alpine streams, splashing and laughing. And the point he draws from that experience is there's a difference between observing something, like looking at a stream through a window, and getting out of the car and going and experiencing the stream for yourselves, splashing in it and getting it on you and enjoying it. There's a difference between observing a truth and experiencing a truth. And I wonder how many, and this is a basic point, how many of us are content to sit in the car behind the windows of observation and know a lot, but never wade into the stream ourselves. That we have our Bible studies and we read books and we acquire lots of biblical facts, all of which is good. You can't know God if you don't know about God, so that has to be there. But... If that's where it stops, we're in the car looking through the windows and not experiencing it for ourselves. When I believe the Spirit of Christ was given so that he would lead us out of the car and into the water so that we could experience God's truth, God's love, the truth of the crucifixion and the resurrection for ourselves. I wonder how many of us in here are are still in the car. you got to make it your prayer. Lord, will you please open the door? I don't want to just know about you anymore. I want to know you the way Abraham knew you, and Isaac knew you, and David knew you, Moses knew you, and Paul knew you. That's how I want to know you. I want to know that your love is better, better, better than life. That, my friends, I believe is the way forward. It ought to be the heartbeat of our praying, and each of the sermons that comes from this particular stage ought to connect in some way to showing us the glory of God and praying and asking and pleading with the Spirit of God. Will you take the information you have given to us and ignite it in our souls so that we might live for you despite whatever desperate circumstances we might be in? I hope, and I want to ask you, Pray that. Lord, I don't want to be outside the car. I don't want to know you by way of observation anymore. I want to know you by way of experience as well. Splash in the streams. And then, when I know firsthand that you are good and you are powerful and glorious and loving, I will live for you more effectively.
Will you make that your prayer this morning? Just bow your heads in this place. If you honestly before God can say, hey, I'm out of the car swimming in the stream, then that's great. Pray for more of it. It's more comfortable to stay in the car, but if you're in the car, I just ask, pray, Lord, please, will you show me firsthand that your love is better than life?